You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. It is a great privilege to stand before you again. Preach the word. We kick off a series this morning, as James said, um, starting in the book of Ephesians. For the next four weeks, we're going to walk through the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is amazing. It is full of all kinds of uh, beautiful theological truth and incredibly practical application. Um, One commentator calls it the divinest composition of man. Wow, that's pretty uh, glowing comments. Who is that man? Uh, well, look with me there in your bulletin or in your Bibles. You'll see in verse 1 the answer to that question. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, that might be surprising because we remember a little bit of Paul, formerly Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians. Um, he was holding the coats while Brother Stephen was um, stoned to death. So this is that Apostle Paul, um, now God's authorized spokesman. So we get a glimpse of that amazing grace, even as we think about the author of the book. Well, he's writing to saints in the church. He's writing to saints in the city of Ephesus in the first century. But brothers and sisters, he's also writing to us in the 21st century. So let's give our attention to this great uh, opening text If you are able, would you please stand with me for the public reading of God's word? This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Please be seated. Pray with me.
most gracious God, as we hear this panorama of your lavish grace, our hearts are warmed. And so we pray as we unpack this passage together that you would speak right to our hearts through your servant this morning. That whether we are young or old, whether we are strong or weak, whether we are rejoicing or weeping, encourage and refresh our souls in Christ. For we ask in his name, amen. Amen. Did you ever take a selective attention test? This thing was passed around by email several years ago, and when I got it, I'm such a competitor, I had to see how I did at the selective attention test. So you click on a video, and the screen pops up and says, quite simply, count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. And so I focused on the screen, counting the players in white each time they passed the basketball, and for about 30 seconds, I was counting and counting and counting. At the end, it says, how many passes did you count? And I had counted 15, and the correct answer came up as 15. So while I was fist-pumping my success, the next thing that popped on the screen was this. But did you see the gorilla? (laughs) Has anyone done this? Selective attention test? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Did you see the gorilla? I thought, what on earth is this question about? And then sure enough, it plays that 30-second video in slow motion. And in the middle of me watching those guys passing the ball, I realized that right out from the side walks a man dressed in a gorilla suit. He stands right in the midst of those basketball players, and he thumps his chest like this, and then he keeps going out the other side. And like most people, I didn't even notice. You know... Psychologists call this inattentional blindness. It's also known as perceptual blindness. It's defined this way. A failure to notice a fully visible object because attention was engaged on another task, event, or object. Failure to notice. Friends, I think all of us, to some degree, suffer from inattentional blindness. I think in our DIY culture, our do-it-yourself culture, that mindset that says, I can do it in my own strength has pervaded into the church. And so often we, often in our approach to scripture, we have this inattentional blindness where we are reading scripture only with a mind towards a to-do list. Tracking with me? You might have never said this out loud, but some of us think, I've heard enough about what God has done. Just tell me what I need to do. As if the scripture were this list of do's and don'ts that we are to strive to accomplish in our own strength. Friends, I wonder if you have inattentional blindness. If you think about God's word only from the angle of what is required of you. Are you looking for a to-do list that you might check all the boxes and somehow feel that you are right with God? I think if we're honest this morning, we all have that legal blindness. That that hardwired into us is that desire to just make ourselves okay. Well, the book of Ephesians, as is so often the case in scripture, begins not with things that we are to do. But instead, it begins with this mind-blowing theology. 
The first three chapters and the places where we are going to focus this summer are that mind-stretching, mind-blowing theology. We recognize that in Scripture, doctrine comes before duty, that exposition comes before exhortation. And that's why this morning we pick up here in Ephesians 1 with this glorious doxology, this incredible panorama that describes all of the amazing things that God has done for us in Christ. God wants to get our attention this morning. Parents, have you ever had that situation where your child wants your attention real bad and you are very distracted? So they get right up in your face and they grab a hold of your cheeks and they turn your face towards them. Have you had that moment? Children, have you done that when you can't get mommy and daddy's attention? Um, I know it happened to me as a parent. This morning, as it were, our gracious God grabs us by the face He steers us eye to eye and he reminds us that in Christ we are anchored in these glorious promises, these eternal purposes that will most certainly come to pass, that he is in fact making all things new. And that starts with uniting distracted people like you and me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that union, then, we are connected to one another in the church. And we live in this community of broken, distracted people who are being made new. And that's, that's, what, that's where Ephesians starts. And so that's where we start this morning. I want to just take two angles at this beautifully packed piece of Scripture so I want to start with the satellite view. We're just going to fly over the text and pull out some of the highlights. And then we'll look more specifically at one particular dimension of the passage. So the grand vision then is the first of our two points. And we say this, in Christ, we find our place in the greatest story ever told. In Christ, we find our place in the greatest story ever told. You heard it. It's verses 3 through 14. In the original language, it's one long sentence. And as I say that, I don't want you to make the mistake that many commentators do, where they say, boy, Paul is just going berserk. He's just uh, one thing after another, piling truth upon truth with no apparent order. One commentator actually likens the Apostle Paul to a baby eagle that's flying for the first time, just not sure where to go, rising and wheeling around, uncertain in which direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. Is that what's happening here? On the contrary, on the contrary, Um, Dr. Steve Baugh, an expert in Greek, has shown us brilliantly that these 12 verses are actually a very carefully constructed piece of literature. That there are nine specific stanzas that are meant to be read with deliberate pauses so that the import of their significance can really land on our hearts. So the first of those nine stanzas is verse 3. And and, and let's start there, remembering that in Christ, we find our place in the greatest story ever told. Would you look with me at verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing. Two things that we see in this opening stanza. We see the Trinitarian nature of our redemption. We see one God in three persons actively engaged in bringing about the transformation of the world. Did you see it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him, so Father, Son, in him, with every spiritual blessing. So if we take that adjective and recognize that what Paul is saying is this is a blessing of the Holy Spirit. So here's Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this introductory stanza telling us that that the purposes of God will stand. So we see the Trinitarian nature. The other thing we see is the comprehensive nature of God's plan. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit, every blessing, past, present, and future, are right here for us, previewed in verse 3. It spans all of time, past, present, and future. So let's just walk through that Trinitarian presentation. Let's talk about what the Father does first. So if you look at verse 4, we see we are chosen by the Father. Chosen by the Father. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, brothers and sisters, chosen when? Before the creation of the world. Before you did, thought, or said anything, God set his affection on you. Look at verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So, lest we think that God's engagement with our soul was the result of our track record Paul clarifies, and three times in this passage, he says the reason he did this is according to the purpose of his will. So we see that three times in verses 5, 9, and 11, according to the purpose of his will. Paul wants us to know right up front that our redemption is not the result of our good works, that nothing we do think or say contributed to God's selection of us, which happened before the foundation of the world. So that's the first dimension we see the Father chooses. The second thing we see is we are redeemed by the Son. We are redeemed by the Son. So in this satellite view, in our overhead flight, we see that that Paul now takes us from before the creation of the world, he takes us to a time after creation and after the fall. And we're on this Mount of Calvary. And we're looking in and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, it says in verse 7, we have redemption. In him we have redemption. We're going to say more about redemption in our second point. So here, let me just let Calvin have the final word, thinking about how we are redeemed by Jesus. Calvin said this, the son of God became the son of man, that the sons of men may become sons of God. Tracking with me? The son of God became the son of man. Jesus entered in. He put on flesh. He entered into this broken creation and he lived the life that we could never live so that we might become children of the living God. And that is what we are, brothers and sisters. So that's the uh, 
That's the second dimension. And, and the, the finally, then, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. We see the work of the Holy Spirit plainly in that we are assured by the Spirit. We are assured by the Spirit. Look with me at verse 13. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In the ancient Near East, a seal was something that that authenticated. It's something that certified the legitimacy of something. And what Paul is saying to us this morning in the 21st century church is that, that by this promised Holy Spirit, this invisible spirit taking up residence in us, that we are in fact secure and safe. That we are certified as children of the living God and we are sealed until everything will be made right. Paul talks about that time when everything will be made right. So let's look at that. Look with me at verse 10. He speaks now about the distant future as a plan, he says, for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and on earth. So Paul has pointed us back before creation. He said God chose us before the foundation of the world. And now he's pointing us to the other end of this sacred timeline. When the Lord Jesus Christ will return, having accomplished the work for which the Father sent him, having turned everything that has been turned upside down by sin, right side up by way of redemption. He will unite all things again. So it'll be back to the way it should be. Harmony, intimacy, connection with a faithful God. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest story ever told. And so often our inattention blindness causes us to miss because we get caught up on other things. We miss this incredible story, this drama that is taking place around us. And more importantly, we often say, well, I wonder how God fits into my story. I wonder where I could give him a little part over here. And instead, what God is saying is, I'm bringing you into my story. I'm drawing you into the greatest story ever told. On my office wall in the seminary, I have a painting by T.J. Lind. T.J. was a member of our church in Montana, and he was an incredible oil painter. And he is able to capture the beauty of Montana with paint in such a way that it actually looks like a photograph. And so on my wall is this beautiful painting that TJ has done. It shows the big sky of Montana and it shows several rolling mountains. And in in the foreground is a trail that walks into it. And my response each time I look at that is I'm drawn in. I see those mountains and I remember camping with my family. I see that trail and I remember hikes in the wilderness with my friends and church members. I am drawn into that incredible panoramic image. And friends, that's what God is doing this morning. When he gives us this amazing panorama, he's inviting us in to the greatest story that has ever been told. And he's saying, you who bear the image of God, broken as it may be, are redeemed by my lavish grace, and you take a part 
in that drama. That you are now part of that beautiful cosmic makeover. He starts with image bearers. He starts with you and me, brothers and sisters. So, why do you think he spends so much time camping on the vertical? Because he knows how self-referential we are. He knows how we want to list. He knows how we want to hear about what, what is expected of us. So he slows down the tape and he takes us on this incredible journey, this panorama of God's grace. So you who struggle with, self, with selective attention like I do, may we together remember this is our story. This is what God is doing. He is rolling back the curse and he has started with people. He has started with image bearers like you and me and he presses in. So brothers and sisters, remember your identity. May that 12 verse doxology draw you in like a painting that you would see your place in that panorama of grace. So that's the high level view. There's an amazing story taking place. Don't let your focus on yourself cause you to miss it. So we, we, we remember this grand plan that is walking out in our midst right before our eyes. There's the gorilla. Right before our eyes, there's this incredible redemption taking place. Now let's shift gears and zoom in on one particular dimension of that beautiful panorama of grace. So we've seen that in Christ we find our place in the greatest story ever told. Now we see in Christ we find true freedom. In Christ we find true freedom. Why am I putting in Christ before each of my points? Because just like Paul does in this passage, I recognize that union with Christ is a significant truth that we often miss. That's why again and again Paul repeats himself. Uh, he says, in Christ, through Jesus Christ, in him, in the beloved, in Christ. And now in verse 7 he says, through his blood. Through his blood. This is all the language of union with Christ. That invisible spirit uniting us to Christ in such a way that the essence of the gospel becomes real to us. What is that essence? Look at verse 7. There it is. This is the essence of the gospel. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. In Christ we have redemption. Redemption is not a word that we use every day, is it? Maybe some of you shop with coupons and you're familiar with redeeming a coupon. Some of you use gift cards. We talk about redeeming a gift card. In Paul's day, the language of redemption was extremely familiar and front and center for his audience. Why? Two reasons. One, for the Jewish Christians, they remembered the exodus. They remembered the way God redeemed them by his outstretched right arm. That's the language of Exodus. Deuteronomy uses that same redemption language to describe the deliverance of God's people from bondage in Egypt. There was also a present reality for those in Ephesus. Ephesus was a slave trading city where... Um, 
a Ro- the Roman Empire, the, there was actually a Roman slave trading station right there in Ephesus. Some scholars estimate that as much as a third of Ephesus were actually slaves themselves. So this was a time when people were being uh, involuntarily um, bought and sold. And this city of Ephesus was a centerpiece of that. So when, when, when Paul talked about redemption, those, those in Ephesus knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about the payment of a ransom. That with the payment of a ransom came freedom. With the payment of a ransom came freedom. So let's zoom in on those two key words. A ransom and freedom. Ransom and freedom. And what we see is, whereas a slave could be bought with silver and gold, our ransom comes in the form of a person. Jesus himself said, in characterizing his mission in Mark 10, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we were redeemed, Peter says, from an empty way of life, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And so that's what Paul's reminding us of when we think about redemption, when we think about uh, being set free, it comes at a great cost. And that cost is the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the ransom has been paid. The ransom has been paid. And I want you to notice in verse 7, Paul tells us that that freedom is bought in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. With all wisdom and understanding. The grace that you have received comes from a God who counted the cost. He knew how costly our redemption would be, and yet he did it anyway. So I, I want you to see that, that, that he was informed. He, he knew the high cost and accomplished our redemption anyway. Paul here zooms in on the very heart of the gospel, friends, It's that substitutionary mediation of Christ. It's that in his perfect life, death and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand, Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. And the good news is, because he did, we have freedom. In him, in him is redemption. In him is freedom from sin's penalty the forgiveness of our trespasses. But there's more than just freedom from the penalty of sin. There is also freedom from its power. In his resurrection, uh, Jesus conquered the power of sin and death. And for you, brothers and sisters, that means that your identity is secure and you do not have to turn away. You are no longer in bondage to your sin, but you can actually obey the living God. You can walk by faith with your eyes fixed on Jesus 
And you can put to death those habits, even those ones that seem intractable. And friends, as we move to a conclusion, what I want you to see is that's precisely where Paul steers us. When we ask the question, how should we use our freedom? How do we exercise this incredible freedom? Paul tells us three times that that everything we do is to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. So in many ways, Paul is modeling for us. How do we exercise our freedom? We do it in a life of humble submission to the king. We do it in a life of praise that acknowledges I don't bring anything to the table and I receive everything. That even though I deserve the opposite, God gives me mercy and he gives me Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, our inattentional blindness lets us focus on so many other things. And this morning, God is steering our thoughts again. He's grabbing our cheeks and he's steering our thoughts to his son. He's saying, look again. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember the redemption that is yours. You are no longer a slave to fear. You are no longer a slave to sin. But you are a child of the living God. The ransom has been paid in full. So may our freedom, brothers and sisters, May our freedom move us to this lifestyle of worship. May it move us to a life of grateful obedience to the king. And may it move us to remember that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured. And you, my friends, are that joy. That as sons and daughters of King Jesus, you are the joy of his heart. You are the apple of his eye. And he has promised that never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. May our response be one of gratitude. May our response be one of humble submission. And may we together as a church fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we do acknowledge our inattentional blindness. And we pray that as we reflect on your word preached, and now as we partake of the supper, that you would continue to push out that unbelief that remains in our hearts so that we may be worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, who worship on Sundays and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and every day of the week. For your glory's sake, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.